Hi, this is uh, Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. So Drawing a Dialogue is a podcast discussing comics in historical and educational contexts. Um, so we talked about this a lot in the first episode, but we have like a few goals with Drawing a Dialogue. And um, part of those goals is to be able to talk about comics and try to expand that conversation and provide um, some insight in how and why we talk about comics in our context in the way we do. Yeah. So not just who we talk about, but also like what categories, I guess, that we put comics in, like discussing them in terms of like art history or uh, rhetorical tradition. Yeah, like sort of the broader visual culture, to use Marjulia's terminology, comics and comics adjacent media. <laughs> so my name is Kathy G. Johnson. I am a cartoonist and I'm also an educator. Um, I have a master's degree in art education. So sort of my portion is going to be about education. And then my name is Ian. I do the... Um... Sort of the, I don't like the word history because I think that's, that context isn't always just the historical elements of thing. It's also how it is being dealt with in contemporary times. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily like the word history, but uh, the context and history of comics. Yeah. So the title for today's episode is History of High Culture and Gatekeeping in the Arts. And that's the arts capitalized. Yeah. So we, we actually started off, I guess this episode was kind of. Uh, to pull back the curtain a little bit, this was going to be a different conversation. Uh, and Kathy wrote down some questions for me. And then I kind of fell into my <laughs> own research hole uh, when I was looking at for those. Because originally we were going to talk about like high culture versus low culture and how comics became low culture. And that's like a really interesting conversation. But I kind of got more interested in tracking where high culture originated like where the concept of high culture and fine art and high art and all that stuff kind of came from uh, originally and how it has continued to uh, prevail in cultural theory mm -hmm. and that kind of is a really interesting and long thing and I think um, so something that's really important for me because we were just talking about our goals is also like accessibility of academia in general and as I'm going to get into a lot of this is intentionally designed to be inaccessible to people um, who are outside of this world and I think in order to have like a really good understanding of comics's place in this it's important to have an understanding of um high culture stuff and to be able to like have a conversation that helps make that accessible mm -hmm. I guess is something that's important to me. yeah and I think part of what we're doing here is that this is like a continuous dialogue so I kind of love the idea that um we you set off with a research question but then the research sort of leads you in other directions to try to find answers and stuff yeah so I'm very happy that uh, to embrace uh, your topic. <laughs> yeah. So also, I think this is just art history. Like this sort of like art history stuff is really uh, has always been kind of a soft spot for me. <laughs> so I was pretty excited to delve into it. All right. This is kind of something I touched on last time when I was talking about how comics have been traditionally defined. Uh, our understanding of culture in general, or at least like the idea of it that's been pushed in American Eurocentric white academia spaces is uh, really deeply tied to Greco-Roman academic traditions. We kind of treat that as the 
highest point of society and that's why we have these continuing dialogues with uh socrates and aristotle um and such Mm. but early divisions between high culture and low culture start kind of start to be seen in like the 15th century around the time of the renaissance with the advent of the printing press because that was a point right where this technology made it possible to mass produce things so like mass produce uh texts and mass produce engraved images Mm. and the second that becomes a thing where we can make something accessible to people immediately there becomes a need to somehow separate it from what was considered high art at the time which was like the masters you know uh raphael michelangelo etc um and this is also around the same time as the revival of humanism which is a greek idea that basically attached importance to human thought rather than divine thought um, so this was where we start to move away from medieval religious scholasticism back to like Greco-Roman worship, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say worship in the sense of like holding that up as the standard and continuing to. And you'll kind of see this repeat throughout history where the minute something becomes accessible to a larger populace, its social status goes down. We kind of start to see that with the printing press and it kind of just continues okay. throughout uh, that time, yeah. No, it's interesting. <laughs> oh, okay. So in um, 1869, there was an essay, a critical essay written by Matthew Arnold called Culture and Anarchy, which contrasted uh, his definition of culture, which was a study of perfection against anarchy, which he said lacked standards and direction. It was a lot about, it had a lot to do with like, he was British and a lot to do with like political things happening in Britain at the time and like British democracy. And his argument was that culture was the center of authority. So the state, essentially. And it was about worshipping the ends rather than the means. So very anti-industrialization, right? Because industrialization is all about the process. It's like making things, a lot of things all at once. Okay. And so this, his argument was about culture being like where the goal is like this end product. Industrialization is sort of like a recurring like in terms of cultural ramifications. This is also like where you start to see the concept of craft uh, which is decorative art things. So like furniture making, stained glass, architectural drawing, things like that get commercialized further because we have this technology that allows us to do that. And that's where you start to see like things like the arts and crafts movement, um, which was about like reclaiming those for fine art and stuff like that. So this tension between high art and high culture and low culture kind of ends up being a lot about accessibility and also economy like industrialization and things being mass produced one of the most important i think in terms of like talking about this sort of idea being further established is um clement greenberg who was a modernist critic kind of the modernist critic uh incredibly influential (laughs) uh he kind of is the one that kind of codified modern art is as what it is he wrote an essay in 1939 or a series of essays and one of them was avant-garde and kitsch and he establishes in that essay avant-garde as art for art's sake so the idea that there is an essence of the art itself and avant-garde is attempting to get at that essence but avant-garde still struggled because 
it wanted to be above capitalism, but it was still strongly tied to it. Greenberg was very, very Marxist influenced. Like this whole essay is super Marxist. Mm -hmm. And what he says is, no culture can develop without a social basis, without a source of stable income. And in the case of the avant-garde, this was provided by an elite among the ruling class of that society from which it assumed itself to be cut off, but to which it has always remained attached by an umbilical cord of gold. So this idea that avant-garde, which is high culture, high art, is funded by the wealthy and does, as a result, doesn't, it's not completely divorced from capitalism, but it also doesn't belong to commoners, essentially. Mm -hmm. And he contrasts that against kitsch, which is very capitalist driven, essentially, mass produced art. And I thought that was really interesting because if you'll remember from um, last episode, as I mentioned, a lot of early definition of comics included mass-produced as part of the definition. Yeah. Like, the idea of comics being kitsch is baked into a historical conversation about comics, like, back in the 40s. That's sort of where that came from, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting, because there's the whole thing about commercialization and devaluing things. Yeah, and he really, really was the modernist critic, right? Yeah. And his goal of modernism was the art for art's sake, which is the true essence of art, right? That you just said. And then so part of that is actually, you know, his favorite painter was Jackson Pollock because he believed that drip paintings um, would is the essence of paint. Right. And so the part of what was very difficult for cartoonists at this time was actually that there isn't a true essence, the comic books, Right, because they are a hybrid genre, so they are words and pictures for the most part. Yeah. So like they didn't, they weren't ever able to fall into that modernist critic demand, just like you were saying, and they fell into the kitsch category. Yeah, and I also think that's something that was recognized by early cartoonists because I mean those early definitions came from cartoonists, right? Mm -hmm. So from the get go, they were kind of saying like yeah we're kitsch we're <laughs> we're not trying to be this and this is i'm talking about the 40s not later yeah, but and yeah. then sort of greenberg absolutely abhorred pop art um which is the movement uh, that comes after this and so he absolutely abhorred things like lichtenstein um who took mm -hmm. from comic books to try to create the kitsch to be high art yeah i just wanted to say greenberg Hated Lichtenstein. <laughs> no, I think that's good because that actually is a segue into um, this essay, like I said, is from 39. And then we, you see the art world kind of defining itself in this early industrialized period as like wanting to break outside of, or at least according to Greenberg, wanting to break outside of this capitalist idea and being tied to it because they needed money, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then in, in 1964, Arthur Danto published a series of essays about what he called the art world, all one word. So his idea, and it's flawed, I don't 100% agree with it, but I agree with his basic uh, premise, which is that essentially it's impossible to divorce high art from the institution. So what makes art art is that it exists in this institution. And I actually have a quote from uh, Simon Grennan, uh, his essay, Misrecognizing Misrecognition, which is kind of about comics market and art market. And he says, the identification of this market as the semiotic engine generating the relative significance of art objects encompassing and superseding the older paradigm of education of their value, which was based on the concept of the unique properties of these art objects, largely derives from Arthur Danto's attempts to theorize a 
Hermeneutics of Art in the Mid-60s. Danto claims that explanations of both the past and possible functions of art broadly produced as contemporary art history are only comprehensible given an expertise in an art topic or profession, and that this expertise derives from a dynamic of consensus and attrition or differences in expert opinion, which validates or disavows the different levels of shared expertise that this creates. So that's a really like mm. academic way of saying what basically that high art is able to exist because there is a culture of people that work in art who decide something is art. And so you see that like the fine art market now exists like it's because it's still a thing the fine art market the institution is this like mass international market that functions globally that has its own set of rules and culture and in order for something to be high art it kind of has to touch it right or else it's outsider art Mm -hmm. there's a word for things that are made outside of the institution and they're outsider art and so this is how we end up with comics still kind of existing outside of this institution because from the beginning comic creators place themselves in kitsch and critics place them in kitsch and then it just kind of stayed that way regardless of how comics have evolved since the very early days of like comics being primarily an advertising method Mm. are we referring to just in North America, or yeah. is this um, does this encompass uh, like Europe? This or is anything? mostly North America. I think this plays in Britain as well. French French criticism is a bit different. They have they call comics like the ninth art, and it's like its own thing. Um, and then mm-hmm. outside of that, I'm not a hundred percent sure. <laughs> That's the other interesting thing, actually, that uh, Grennan talks about in Misrecognizing Misrecognition is that um, unlike fine art, which is this like globally unified thing, comic markets are divided still among language lines and broken up by different cultures. So like the French comics market is not the same market as the American is not the same market as the Indian is not the same market. You know what I mean? Uh, but it is the same market for fine art. Yeah, it's the same market for fine art. And it like goes into even like the language that we used, which is a thing that I'm very interested in. Because like I said, this institution is very gatekeepy. You basically mm-hmm. to understand uh, the high art world, you basically have to have a degree in it. Right. Because that's how this concession is made is it's people who exist in it like if i take a press release or an artist statement or like a critical essay about work to a stranger on the street they're probably not going to be able to understand it not because they lack intelligence or the or whatever or the ability to like understand conceptual art but because we have designed the conception the, the world of art nowadays, which is mostly conceptual, to be not understood by someone who doesn't already exist in this world. Mm -hmm. And there's a really fun article I read about what the author called International Art English. Uh, It was written by a critic and an artist, and it was sort of their term for the lingua franca of the art world. Artists like across the world use English to talk about, like that's just kind of um, the thing, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah. So they say like, Starting in the 1960s, the university became the privileged route into a rapidly growing American art world. In a much expanded art world, this language has a job to do, consecrate certain artworks as significant, critical, and indeed contemporary. IAE has developed to describe work that transcended the syntax and terminology used to interpret the art of earlier times. 
So like this essay is like an interesting one and I do recommend reading it. Um, it'll be in our show notes. It's flawed in that it's written by two native English speakers and the way they talk about um, non-native English speakers is a little crummy. But the actual like assessment of uh, IAE is like the way the syntax is used, the preference for certain like phrases, uh, like reality is a big phrase that people really like, liminal Hmm. Uh, like when you know that like stereotype of like someone reading their artist statement and it's really like fruity <laughs> that's kind of what IAE is <laughs> okay yeah and that is like an intentional flowery yeah that is like an intentional thing to like keep people from being able to access and understand this world because the second it becomes something that is accessible to a lot of people it's not valuable anymore right like that's what you see with illustration that's what you see with comics hmm. so there was a lot of um I was reading a few different things that kind of talked about ways in which comics could become art and whether ironically or not they all kind of suggested that like the way we talk about comics would have to change in order for comics to be get to that quote-unquote capital a art status okay because we would have to start evoking that iae in order to like gain acceptance into it which i thought was like an interesting point because i think that ties back into accessibility like i said because if we if people decided like, okay, we're going to make comics art and we're going to do it by uh, getting them into the institution, which is problematic. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's the international art English. And what you're saying is that people use this flowery language in order to create sort of a language barrier to people accessing. And we're talking about the fine art world. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at specifically is like uh, Greenberg and Danto and these guys, they aren't the only voices talking about this. I picked avant-garde and kitsch and art world because they're really like influential and they both kind of changed the way we talk about art. People mm -hmm. agree and disagree with them. Like it's not a hive mind, but both also kind of get at a point that I think has to do with like the fact that a lot of this is very market driven, despite any claims about or not claims I guess but you know when we talk about this stuff we tend to talk about it in terms of like writing and thought and philosophy and Danto was a philosopher actually uh in addition to being a critic but a lot of it is very like stuff that's high culture is stuff that's specifically designed to be not economically available if something is economically available we tend to disregard it immediately uh, disregard it from the art fine art yeah. world like it's not it's the same with books too, right? Like romance novels and things that are cheaper and easier to find aren't as like valuable as like more expensive things, right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like that was the main thing that I thought was interesting that like both of them kind of touch on. I mean, G Greenberg specifically because he was a Marxist and then Art World also just this idea that like this is very defined by the market and how we treat things that uh, poor people can get. Yeah, that's a great segue from my segment. It's called Education Evaluation. I just want to start out, so it's sort of the education perspective for comics and for what um, E just laid out. So uh, affordability is a type of gatekeeping in the arts, so people of lower socioeconomic statuses can be cut off from the arts. So a classist attitude, which is sort of implicitly maintained throughout a variety of areas of society. Like an example is that um, at the an art museum in Indianapolis, in an article written by Kaminsky in um, 2016, so this is very recent, showed that raising entrance fees for their art museum lowered attendance 
um, but it raised membership and it, it started making more money. And they considered this program a success. Even though less people were going, they were receiving more money. Um, so it's less about accessibility and more about appealing to richer patrons. Right. And so, so sort of the, on the opposite scale of that, public libraries, um, which is where comics can be accessed, are free. And then also continuing the story, talking about affordability, um, in, in the educational setting, art supplies such as paints and clay can be expensive, um, material costs which can be detrimental to the art classroom in public schools. So like, I mean, it's pretty well known that public schools have been cutting art classes. There's some, some students I know in Rhode Island have art class maybe once a week. Right. Um, and that's like a special case. Some schools don't have any art classes. Or they only are allowed to take it once throughout their entire middle school career or something. And the opposite end, comics can be made with a number two pencil and paper. Um, these are materials that are readily available in any North American school. So comic books are cheap and accessible to everyone to read and create, um, no matter social circumstance. So no matter if you can afford the art museum entrance fee, you can always afford to go to the public library for free. So I have written here like a lot of sort of statistics on the popularity of comic books. So like comic books um, between the years 2000 and 2015 estimated sales by the largest comic book distributor in North America, which is Diamond Comic Distributors, um, reported a 268% growth. Yeah. So their distribution went from 255 million to 940 million. In 2015, dollars, $940 million is how much Diamond Comic Distributors sales are. Yeah. And this is from an article from 2016, so this is very recent. And also, there are numbers to prove that the popularity of comic books, but you can also talk to people. Um, like any children's librarian will tell you that graphic novels fly off the shelves. It's been statistically shown that the more graphic novels that you have in your library, in your public library, the more overall checking out. People check out more books, not necessarily just the graphic novels, but if you add more graphic novels, people will start checking out other books as well. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's like, it's quite proven that they are, I mean, I say quite proven. This is just like one statistic. These are, this is like a very small area of research right now, unfortunately, but. Well, I have anecdotal, uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I volunteer with uh, the friends of the local library and I help them. They do like a book sale once a week uh, to raise money for the library. Mm -hmm. And they have a pretty impressive collection and they have comics and stuff. My job is I sit outside at the table and we have some and like we try to get people to go inside to where the rest of them are. <laughs> um, but literally I get so many people because I'll just be like, oh, by the way, we also have comics inside. And immediately they're like, oh, okay. And go inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're not just borrowing the comics. They're borrowing all sorts of other things. Yeah, like people will just come out having bought a lot of stuff. Yeah, a reading is a social activity. So if you see other people reading or people in your house read, you will read more yourself. So that's um, maybe part of the argument for why that statistic is true. Yeah. And also anyone in the um, comic industry can tell you that young adult comics, the publishers can't get enough young adult graphic novels being published right now publishers are really snapping it up which really shows that there's a high demand what this says is that comic comics and graphic novels are a popular media but is it art yeah. with a capital a 
end, does that matter? Yeah. So the categorization of comic books as an art form has been in debate since the beginning of comic books. Big names in the industry um, have often embraced the counterculture qualities of comic books. So Beattie, who we talked about in his book, Comics vs. Art, um, has a quote. This is from 2012. Largely ignored by critics and art historians and consequently disdainful of the interests of those groups, comics have long reveled in their lowbrow bad boy image. <laughs> I think anyone in the comics industry can tell you that there is sort of a prevailing attitude of rebellion, that there's something that comic book creators are uh, working against. So Ivan Brunetti has a comic art education book himself called Cartooning, Philosophy and Practice. Um, it's 20, from 2011. He also embraces this viewpoint in his attitude towards art education of comics. So the, the quote is, um, the search for meaning, catharsis and dignity in the humble act of cartooning may seem an especially delusional quest. Who, after all, wants to take lessons from losers? <laughs> So this prevailing attitude supports the idea that comics are not worthy as an art form themselves. Um, it's sort of an attitude that is often happily embraced by cartoonists, sort of against this high culture fine art idea. It's not surprising considering that in order to be a cartoonist, many professional cartoonists had to overcome marginalization in the art classroom. So Jeff Adams, who wrote, who has a 1999 article titled Of Mice and Manga, comics and graphic novels and art education. He points out that there's a lack of comics education before college level education. The quote is, the close linkage between the forms of animation, comics and graphic novels has, particularly in Japan and increasingly elsewhere, made for a specific cultural formation that has had a significant impact in the visual arts across the Western world in the last 30 years. Looking at mainstream art curriculum programs and attendant art history literature in the corresponding period, one would be forgiven for believing that it had not happened, even in a minor way. Notwithstanding the tendency of some curriculum governing bodies to ignore or conceal cultural paradigms perceived to be popular, there is a surprising lack of serious practice or analysis occurring within mainstream visual education prior to specialized courses at university art levels. This is from 1999, so it is 18 years old now. So at the same time that uh, comics-related courses are isolated to higher education, cartooning is discouraged in the K-12 system. Yeah. This is also um, a collection of anecdotal evidence, but um, it's not unusual for current professional cartoonists, such as you or I, to say that while they were growing up, art teachers in school would encourage them to keep a separate sketchbook. One sketchbook was there for their real work, artwork for their graded portfolios, and another for their doodles, their cartoony drawings. These were the drawings that their art teacher didn't consider yeah, art. Yeah, actually, that um, <laughs> I got told that a lot. <laughs> yeah, and so, and just like what Adams was talking about is, it's ignored. It, it, it is in art education, people act as if this isn't happening. That cartoons are and comic books are extremely popular, and that they don't deserve um, to be taught, to be examined. Yeah. So this is a common story among our peers um, who maintained a rebellious attitude and grew up to be professional cartoonists. They came out the other end. But how many kids were hurt by this marginalization? How many kids stopped drawing because their art teacher told them that anime style isn't real art, that cartoons were not respectable and worth their time? Um, so Malakodi, who is a child psychologist, art educator, and art therapist, 
Um, she wrote a book in 1998 called Understanding Children's Drawings. Um, she has a quote, art expression is a very personal creative endeavor, and both children and adults are vulnerable to disparaging remarks about their art. Uh, so Malcody goes on um, to state that even her adult patients, because she is a counselor, um, have vivid memories of things that their elementary school teachers said about their artwork. So even adults can really, really remember things that their teachers can even say offhandedly about their artwork. The critical words and attitudes of teachers about art making can have long-lasting negative impacts on students. Even comments and actions that are not explicitly critical, such as offhand remarks or like where you hang a student's drawing in a classroom, can be remembered as extremely negative. I have another quote here. Uh, These statements and actions can and do affect the content, style, and quality of visual expression, and certainly children's capacity and interest in art making. Now, this is where I'm very, where I really, really sort of hold on to this idea is that it affects a child's interest in making art, right? And I believe that creativity is vitally important to everyone. Uh, it's a fundamental human right. Everyone has the right to self-expression yeah. and the right to consume and identify with visual culture. This is the culture that's surrounding us. Everyone has a right to feel like they can own it. Yeah. So when art educators, um, when we art educators ask students to make artwork, we are asking for them to be extremely vulnerable. Potential artists can be afraid of judgment and they can feel untalented and be unable to produce anything of value. That is from the book Art and Fear that was published in 1993. So there's also class divisions that can be part of this conversation about the arts. So the arts can be extremely alienating. Uh, the arts uh, function as capital, as we were just talking about, can create social order and class divisions. It can define certain types of media as highbrow, lowbrow. And as a result, a lot of people believe that art is outside their realm of possibility. The average adult is nervous to pick up a pencil and draw. Children can oppress their own creativity. Yeah. People can feel like they don't have the skills or their knowledge to be an artist. People think they don't, don't know what real art is and that their creative thoughts and beliefs don't count. Yeah, and that ties back into what I was saying about how, like, the art world has, the art world has, like, specifically defined itself in such a way to encourage that idea yeah and it's i think it's horrible i think it's extremely damaging to young people and our culture oh yeah it sucks yeah so as an art educator the idea that comics could not be art is something that i feel like can be really taken advantage of well i'm not i'm dismayed at the reputation of cartoony art Comic books are a populist medium, and they can use to bridge the divide between people who already think of themselves as creative and people who don't yet. The purpose is not to elevate comic books to a fine art, but to capitalize on the opportunities that they present. It's a positive thing that graphic novels can be borrowed from the library and that web comics can be read online for free. The comic book's popularity, accessibility, and artistic approachability create a fantastic opportunity for the art educator to take advantage of. Yeah. And I know, like, with me, I don't like that. I don't even like that, like, high art, fine art, whatever is so inaccessible. Like, I think that people should be able to have access to that, too. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I, 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 I super don't want comics to succumb to the idea that they need to become, like, disinstitutionalized more than they already know. A different institution, let's say. They need to go to a different institution to get taken more seriously. <laughs> <laughs> like... 
Yeah, and I think this touches on what we were talking about before, where I'm what I'm saying is so much that I mean, I don't know how much we need to argue that graphic novels and comic books are art. Yeah. Right. That's not an argument I care to have. Yeah. But what I am interested in is this bridge that they can create. People who are uncomfortable with paintings in a museum, but they are comfortable with these images, these drawn images. They're comfortable reading with them in books that they get at the library. And I believe that you that's transferable and that's growable. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about this last time, too, with the reluctant reader ethos, is that if someone finds a novel um, daunting, but finds the images um, more legible for them to read, it's a, it's a bridge. It's a bridge to reading. Yeah. And I'm talking about these bridges, but I also want to emphasize that I do believe that graphic novels are of high quality of themselves. And <laughs> yeah, I think learning to like decenter the the argument from being about art versus not art in the first place is ultimately more beneficial yeah. for everyone involved. And if they're lit, and if it's if comic books are literature either. Yeah, yeah, like let's let's not stress anymore about whether <laughs> we're making great art slash literature and just make good comics. <laughs> hey. Like... <laughs> totally. Do you want to move on to our next segment? Sure. Yeah, so this segment is called Letters to the Editor. It can be comments that we receive from listeners or um, it can be things that we felt like we missed or want to add to the conversations that we've had previously to keep drawing a dialogue a dialogue. And E has something that they wanted to share. Yeah. So this essay by Erin Poor uh, called Comics is Minor Literature, um, she was basically making the argument that insisting that comics have to be put into the same academic, academic category as literature does a disservice to comics because it creates a separation between comics that are good literature and comics that are bad literature or whatever. So there was this quote I wanted to read, which was... um. The discourse on the literariness of these works, however, problematically leads to a specific bracketing of comics that not only rejects the study of comics as a medium in its own right, but fractures it into literary and non-literary work, at once elevating graphic novels to the position of literature and perpetuating the denigration of all other comics as mere pop culture entertainment in the process. Um, so that ties into what we talked about a lot, except from a literature point of view as opposed to an art point of view. Mm. And also relates kind of to the definitions from last time, because a big part of the conversation we had last time was about how, because the art world didn't accept comics, we desperately try to fit it into literature. Um, but that's not quite right either. <laughs> yeah. And um, I just wanted to talk about, I, I had a conversation on Twitter um, a few days ago about what is considered literature and what is considered canon. Yeah. Um, and this conversation I had, I feel strongly is about the teaching setting, teaching in a literature course. Yeah. And I feel extremely strongly that the term literature and the term canon is created by an institution. And if you are a part of that institution, you can present anything that you want to your students. And if they want to have the canon literature discussion, they can have that discussion. But I feel strongly that if this is being created, and even in the high school setting, middle school setting, introducing your students to anything can be literature and can be canonized. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that's interesting too. Um, what you were saying about how we decide what things count reminds me of a funny. There was a quote or avant-garde and kitsch that I thought was I kind of comp. I kind of like wrote it down just because it was um kind of funny to me. Mm. Uh, Greenberg was talking about um borderline cases between avant-garde and kitsch, mm-hmm. and he said, and then those puzzling borderline cases appear, such as the popular novelist uh, Simonon in France and Steinbeck in this country. The net result is always to the detriment of true culture. In any case. <laughs> Which I was like, ouch. Oh, Greenberg. <laughs> so, thank you so much. This was drawing a dialogue. I wanted to thank Downtown Boys for the use of their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism, which you can buy anywhere. If you just Googled them, they just released a new album. They're awesome. Yeah. So, you can follow me at Kathy G. John. Um, that's C A T H Y G J O H N. Um, And you can uh, learn more about drawing a dialogue and other education work that I do at comicarted.com. Yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter um, at E-H-E-T-J-A, at (laughs) E-H-E-T-J-A. And that's it. That's it. (laughs) That's where you can find me. (laughs) Kathy, what are you reading? Um, I just finished up. Uh, John Darnielle's new book called Universal Harvester. Um, I got it when I was in vacation in North Carolina, and I thought it would be fun because he's also from North Carolina um, to read it. But it ended up really being about Iowa and like sort of that Midwestern sensibility. And I'm also I have like a very a soft spot for cornfields in Iowa. That my it's my first graphic novel. Jeremiah is about sort of the the feeling of being Midwestern, and I think he captured it so well. Um, every paragraph uh, felt uh, very uh, real. I got really excited, and it feels, even the quality of the novel feels very, like, um, Midwestern, like the feeling of going nowhere until you're right there. Um, it's a fantastic book, and you should pick it up. Universal Harvester by John Darnielle. Uh, so E, what are you reading? Um, I just finished um, Boku no Hero Academia, uh, which is a really good manga, and I've been reading a lot of fan fiction of it. But um, it's about it's like a shonen genre manga, and it's about like superheroes. So it's kind of a look at like a lot of Western genres of superheroes, which is interesting. Um, and one of my favorite things about it is that the author, the artist actually draws each of the characters kind of to the genre they represent. Oh. So there are like little subtle style differences between characters if they're from like a very different genre, which is a really interesting technique. Cool. Yeah, like the, the one char- like the, one of the main characters, All Might, is meant to be like the Superman type American hero, basically. <laughs> and he's draw- like when he's drawn, he's drawn like very like the very um kind of old school jack kirby like thick thick blacks defined muscles like always smiling kind of stiff looking like it's really interesting so that's a really good series that's awesome i recommend um do you have the author's name in a second i will that is by uh kohei horikoshi awesome and it's also an anime that you can watch if that's more your speed i read faster than i watch things so did we come up with a sign off nope you just said bye and I started laughing. Yeah, let's think of something. I mean, I said talk to you later, E, and I was like, talk like dialogue. Yeah, but I didn't know what <laughs> you were no doing, so I was just that. like, what? <laughs>
Um, do you have any ideas? Do you want to say like farewell to our intrepid volunteers, explorers? What was it, intrepid? Oh yeah, that's it for drawing a dialogue. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. <laughs> farewell. <laughs> <laughs>